Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 31 of the How's My Hand Path podcast. We have the pleasure of being joined by a PGA Tour player this week by the name of Patrick Rogers. For those of you who don't know, Patrick is um, a PGA Tour player who works with my good friend Jeff Smith on his golf swing. Uh, Patrick has been dealing with some injuries last in the last year, so he's been working to coming back into, into health. Uh, Patrick is also somebody who went to Stanford like Tiger Woods and actually tied his record of 11 collegiate wins uh, in Division One golf. Patrick was the number one ranked amateur in the world at one point, and he has a pretty decorated career for such a young age, and he's working towards getting that uh, PGA Tour win. So uh, it was a great interview. We talk about his history of, um, you know, when he learned the game. We talk about all sorts of details about his relationship with my friend Jeff and how they started working together and uh yeah there's a lot of insight to be had here so we hope you guys enjoy sweet dude what's going on nothing just um just trying to ride out this this coronavirus quarantine and be ready to go once uh, the tour gets started back up are you gonna try to play every single event you can when it starts again um i'm not a hundred percent sure i for me, my uh, I, I've had some right wrist issues that kept me out for four months last year, um, and so I'm always kind of conscious and of that and dictated by that a little bit. But uh, if I'm if I'm healthy and good to go, I'd love to play as much as I can. How uh, how did your uh, wrist injury start happening? Um, it was it was a little bit of a weird one. Um, I noticed it last spring uh during the florida swing um i was getting some pain kind of on the outside of my right wrist um and it would just get sore after i played um so i thought i just needed a week off and um as i was getting back into it i was feeling some pain at impact um went and saw a doctor and it turns out that i had a, a stress fracture in my wrist um so that was that was pretty difficult and it it was really my first time being out for an extended period of time. Um, but I, I learned a lot from it and, um, I think it's made me a more well-rounded athlete and well-rounded golfer for sure. Have you tried to like strengthen everything around it to try to take any sort of stress off it when you're swinging? Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. Jeff and I kind of have gone down, um, you know, a, a, as many different avenues as we can to try to take some stress off of it. Um, I have a pretty weak right hand grip. Um, I have a lot of side bend and my right arm folds pretty good towards impact. Um, yeah, I definitely see that. And so I get into pretty good ulnar deviation right around imp the impact zone and through the ball. And yeah. so basically we've tried to explore a lot of different ways to, um, to lessen that. So, uh, we've strengthened my right hand grip. Um, we've lengthened my golf clubs an inch um, and tried to quiet my hands a, a good bit through the, the impact zone and then couple that with a lot of treatment and recovery and just um, kind of the day-to-day -day process of staying healthy for me now. Um, and and we're, we're making, making some good progress. I, I played the players championship would have been my 10th week in a row and it wasn't, wasn't really what I had intended to do to start out 2020, but, um, I felt really good and really healthy and very inspired. And so, um, it was nice to be able to compete and, and do what I love to do, especially when it was taken away from me for a little bit there in 2019. Yeah. It almost like brings your love back of the game. Doesn't it? When you're out for so long, it's almost, I'm sure it's doing the same shit now with this fucking virus. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's, it honestly, there's a ton of parallels. Um, this might even be, I don't know. They're, they're a little, little different. I think the fact that I couldn't even go to a golf course for a while. Um, and, and that's the same for every golfer. Um, I just found myself, you know, daydreaming about, um, the kind of practicing that I wanted to do. Um, 
the the golf courses that I wanted to go check out and play and enjoy. And it, it reminded me of being a kid in Indiana again, um, coming out of the winter months, just because the game's taken away from you for a good bit and you understand being Canadian. <laughs> um, so it felt, it's it honestly, both times felt a little bit like coming out of winter. Um, so I have to say that when the golf courses opened up back here in Florida and I was able to just go out and roll a few putts and hit a few chip shots, it was like, um, it was like Christmas morning. It was incredible. Put it this way, dude. Nobody understands what missing the game is like we do in Quebec over here. I think we're, we only get to play like six months out of the year. So half the time we're sitting around. There's an obvious reason why you don't see too many Canadians on the PGA Tour. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly looked at it when I was growing up as a positive um, because every spring I felt so refreshed and I had this incredibly strong desire to go out and improve. Um, and I think that really fostered my love for the game and for the sport. Um, I, I, I've, I'd also gave me the opportunity to play a lot of different others, a lot of other sports growing up. I always played what was in season and I feel like I became a more well-rounded athlete um, through, through kind of dabbling in a lot of different things as a kid. Yeah. I have a couple of questions on that because obviously I'm, I mean, you clearly saw the questions on Twitter about the three point shot and uh, some basketball stuff, but we'll, we'll leave that towards the end. But um, <laughs> okay. So you grew up in Indiana. Is that what I understood just now? Did you have a yeah. did you have a golfing family growing up, or were you kind of like a one off? Oh, somebody who just got so really good? my my dad played uh, d uh, Division two college basketball and was a pretty good player in, in his in his own right. And really, growing up, he just introduced me to every sport. Um, I, I think he understood the benefits of athletics in his life and wanted you know that experience for me. Um, but it didn't really take a whole lot of um, effort on his part. I think it's simple introduction, and, and I I usually had a pretty pretty good burning passion to want to want to improve and want to compete um, and get as good as I could at whatever the sport was. And so I played basketball, baseball, football, soccer, golf, all all growing up, um, and and always kind of bounced around with whatever was in season. Um, but it was it was really a lot of, um, a lot of just play with my buddies. Um, I, I played in leagues and, and played in formal competition, but really never stopped there. I was always playing with my buddies and competing and, um, you know, getting in fights and having to make up and all that. Um, but, uh, for whatever reason, kind of around the age of maybe 10 or 12 years old, I decided, that I really, really loved golf and I wanted to, to be a pro golfer. And when you're 12, that, that's, you know, it's, it seems, um, it seems obvious that if, that if you, if you wanted to do that, then you, you could just do it because I, I had the passion to. And so I didn't really let anyone tell me otherwise and, um, became pretty confident and driven that that was going to be what happened. And, really didn't have any a super strong basis that I was any, any good at golf, at least compared to some other sports. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it was Tiger Woods or just loving it over the summer or the individual nature of the sport. Um, but I loved it and I wanted to be a pro golfer and um, I just kind of followed a, a, along the, the blueprint and the path that I had in my head from a young age. And so it, it, it never really seemed far-fetched anything that I was doing. And once I got to the PGA tour, it just felt like a very natural course for what I had always envisioned. It's very rare that you see somebody lay out a plan that early and actually follow through with it. At what point did you drop the other sports and just focus solely on golf? Was it around that time? No, I played, um, I played basketball in high school. Um, but w once I, uh, kind of towards the end of high school once I, I started realizing that I wanted to be able to compete year-round and play in an event um, during the basketball season um, I made golf my focus uh, but I, I I would go back and I think it played a huge benefit in my life and I would encourage any kid to play as many sports as possible because I, I feel like there was enormous benefit to, to being a basketball player and playing other sports growing up um, that helped my golf and, and really have helped my love for golf. 
as my career has gone on. Nice, dude. So um, I wanted to bring up Stanford, obviously, is like a huge part of your life. Uh, four years at Stanford. First of all, let's talk about you were the number one ranked time in the world for four months straight. What was that experience like? Were you just getting like peppered with questions about when you were going to turn pro and stuff? Um, it was a really good experience because it, uh, it was validation of a lot of hard work. I, I had an interesting kind of transition from junior golf to, to college golf. I, um, I was a, a pretty good junior player and, and I was really small as I was beginning high school. So I was pretty good in my state, but I didn't have a ton of upside because I didn't hit the ball very far. And so there was a lot of kids that I was playing, I was playing against, whether it was on a regional level or a national level, that, that uh, were much better than me. They were bigger than me. They hit the ball further. Their game was more developed. Um, and so I always kind of felt like I was behind some of the better players. And it really motivated me to, to keep working hard because I, I wasn't winning tournaments uh, on a, a national scale, and I really wanted to. Um, and kind of as I grew into my body and I continued to get better, um, I became a, a pretty good junior player and I won a few events and competed pretty consistently across kind of the AJGA circuit and um, was fortunate to have uh, the opportunity to, to go to school um, pretty much anywhere I wanted, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, but Stanford was kind of always a dream of mine, um, but I, I still kind of always had the mentality that I really needed to get a lot better in order to compete at the collegiate level and, and get to where I needed to be to play high-level college golf. Um, and then once I committed to, to Stanford, I, I was really freed up, and I decided that my last kind of year and a half of high school, I wanted to play strictly amateur events. I wanted to play against the people I would be playing against in college and kind of get my feet wet and get comfortable in that environment. Um, and I, I got off to a fantastic start in amateur golf and um, had a had a great spring and summer. And next thing you know, I make the Walker Cup team and I'm a top 10, top five amateur in the world um, right before I was about to head to college. And so I'm getting that experience with the best amateur players in the world um, and getting to know kind of their games and, and um, you know, kind of where I fit with that. I went into college with a ton of confidence that, uh, that I could play really well straight away and kind of be not really a part, but a leader of the team more or less. And um, I had some early success in, in college golf. And um, I guess where I'm going with this is kind of, once I played on the Walker Cup team and I had, had a lot of success in collegiate golf and it had always been my dream um, and, and kind of ambition to, to play golf on the PGA Tour, uh, I felt like I was getting closer to my game being ready for that step. And then I had a lot of my peers, whether it's Jordan Spieth or Justin Thomas, that turned pro relatively early. And so kind of after each year of school, I, I kind of sat down with Coach and my, my family and kind of decided – or evaluated where I was along the, the way and, and in my own process. And so I kind of thought about it after every year. Um, but every year I felt like I, I still had some things that I wanted to accomplish. And I, there was kind of a, a level of play that I wanted to get to. And so when I finally got to the number one amateur in the world, um, it really felt like great validation for my decision to, to be in school um, good validation that I, I still had, you know, a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish and that was one of them. And, um, the timing was definitely right when I decided to turn pro and I was fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to make that transition a little bit easier. Yeah. I saw that you, um, earned enough points, I guess, on what was then the web.com tour to get into the finals on sponsors exemptions. I mean, there are very few golfers I think that have ever gotten to the big leagues or even to the web.com without having to go through the brutality of Q school. Trust me, dude, the amount of mini tour players I work with, it's horrible how often you see such amazing players struggle at that. I mean, it's, I think it's kind of like a famous fact that like guys like Tony Finau went there five times. And I mean, I don't know who Brooks Kepka and Jordan Spieth didn't get out of second stage a handful of times. So what was, what was that like then when you, when you jumped ahead? I mean, you had a, an amazing finish, obviously, at one point during one of the events. Do you remember what the event was? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the thing about professional golf is, um, and there's, there's really no, 
no denying it um is that there's very 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 few people that uh that can play on the pga tour it's a very small group of people and there's an enormous barrier to entry and the um the reality of it is, is there's a lot of great players who aren't playing on the pga tour and um i was i was very well very well aware of how difficult it was to to get there i think i always felt like the hardest part for me would be getting to the tour um, I felt like once I was exempt and had status, I, I had the game that could stand up over the course of a season or kind of stand the test of time. But um, really, in order to get there, you, you almost have to outperform um, the people who are playing on tour at the time. And yeah. uh, like I said, that was one of the reasons why I, I wanted to turn pro when I did was I had a, a nice little runway of opportunities to play on tour. I felt like I had kind of the longest stretch of of opportunities. So I didn't really feel like I had to play well right now or else type of mentality that kind of, um, you know, something like Q school can bring about. Um, but don't get me wrong. It was incredibly difficult. It was a, it was a massive jump more mentally than anything. Good golf is, is still good golf and it travels, but, um, but yeah, going from a, from amateur golf to playing on the PGA Tour when, when kind of suddenly the spotlight feels on you and the lights seem a little brighter and the events feel, feel bigger or more grand and you're playing against players that you've always looked up to, um, that, that for me made me put a lot of pressure on myself to perform and it was definitely a different experience um, that I, I struggled with at first. I, I didn't play my best golf that first summer then I felt like I should have got my card at the, at the web.com or the corn Ferry finals. And I didn't play all that great and ended up missing out by a couple of shots. Um, but it was really interesting that after that experience, cause I was really down that first fall after not getting my tour card straight away. Um, cause that's kind of what I had always envisioned. Um, but after kind of recovering from that, I had a full season to look forward to on the, the web.com tour at the time. And I just remember being so excited for that because I felt like I was starting at zero, just like everyone else. I had every opportunity to play every event that I, that I wanted to play. And it felt incredibly refreshing. And I don't think it's any coincidence that I got off to a great start that season and I won my second event. Um, and then when I was, I had earned enough money to earn my card through two events. And so I felt so freed up when I went back to the tour and played in a few sponsor invites. And the first one that I took was the uh, Wells Fargo Championship at Quail Hollow. And I finished second to Rory and, and earned my card that way. So I think it's my experience is a huge testament to um, the, how much better you can, per, you can perform when your mind is free and clear and not worried about the, the external factors that uh, professional golf seems to, to bring about so often. Yeah, there's two comments I want to make to that. First of all, you mentioned like the fact that, you know, once you get to the tour, you feel like you have the game to be able to sustain like retaining a tour card. There are so many good players that I know that are probably more consistent than some of the guys on the PGA Tour, but they don't get that moment of like hot golf where they run off a few birdies in a row. And they're those kind of players that like consistently finish in like the top 15, 20, but never really get into that next tier, you know? And it's, it's crazy how many good players there are who don't make it because they don't get the good golf to come often enough, but their bad golf doesn't come often enough at either. They're kind of very like flatlined with their game. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the problem with Q school is that a lot of guys don't make it through, not necessarily because their bad golf is bad, but because their good golf just doesn't come often enough or it's not good enough. And so yeah. I, I, I would imagine I can, that was, that's what you felt as well. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I think um, one of the things that always made me a great amateur and college player is I was incredibly consistent. And I think that word gets, gets thrown around all the time, um, consistent. And what does that mean? I guess, I guess for me, my scores were relatively consistent. I, it seems like in, in college and amateur golf, I always shot kind of between 68 and 71. Um, I didn't have hardly any over par rounds, but I I didn't go low all that often. And I think that it's kind of daunting in professional golf because you feel like you have to all the time. Um, I think once you kind of start to break it down, if you shoot three under every day and shoot, you know, 12 under for an event on a difficult golf course, 
you're you're gonna make a a nice little career for yourself and have chances to win um but i definitely think that it feels it feels mentally daunting because like i said there's a massive barrier to entry and in order to to have uh, uh, to kind of break through whether it's on the corn Ferry tour or on the pga tour you or through q school you have to play good golf at the right time and, and kind of when it matters the most to you and i think that's um it's one of the most difficult things about the game and it's one of the things that i enjoy the most as a competitor um is kind of when the when the going gets tough or when things seem really difficult or you know things feel very unfamiliar to you you have to kind of be able to suck it up and and play the way that that you know you can under the highest amount of pressure and um i think that's honestly what separates the guys who who are playing on the pga tour and have had sustained careers um versus the guys who are really talented that that haven't been able to make it yeah i had a follow-up question to that you were talking about like you know you won your second event and obviously that's super freeing mentally because you know you locked down enough points and whatever and you know the idea that you can miss 10 cuts in a row and it wouldn't really affect what your next year is going to look like probably is a huge you know savior uh for the brain as a whole what do you think that somebody can learn to get into that mindset or do you think it just naturally comes with the territory of putting yourself in that position and then you actually now are actually i guess able to do that yeah i definitely think that people can learn to be in that mindset it's something that i've i've worked quite a bit on um i i, I think you can approach it a lot of different ways you can approach it from the rationalization of um you know these are just external factors and and um you know, I can create an internal environment that that is as unaffected as possible, um, and and that's kind of the avenue that that I've gone down and, and found works best for me. Because um, there's always going to be external pressures. There are, there's external pressures for the person who's struggling on the mini tours that is hoping to gain status, and there's external pressures for the number one player in the world. Um, I, I I think you know. A lot of people think that, okay, once I get to this next step or once, you know, I get this, um, you know, once I win this event or, or get a top 10, I'll feel differently. But there's, there's always new challenges and new, new things to face. Um, and so I think the better that you can get uh, at taking kind of what's bothering you externally or what's, what's in front of you um, kind of going forward in your career and then finding you know, kind of finding your own peace and your own solace in that. Um, I, I think the the better that you can handle and manage those things. Um, and so for me, yeah, just kind of coming to the real realization and the ras rationalization that there's always going to be things that, um, you know, I could potentially be worried about or anxious about. Um, and the more that I can go back to focusing on things that are under my control, um, whether it's my work ethic or kind of falling back in love with the process of improving um, the better that I'll play over time. Now, I, I know that I just have one last question on this, but um, I know you recently got married. So first of all, congrats on that. Um, Thank you very much. I uh, do you think that some players get that pressure even amplified because they're now married that they have to support someone else at the same time? Or do you think you have to completely let that be a different world where you can't start worrying about other things like that? Yeah, I think it can go it can go both ways. Um, for me, it's been a huge positive. I'm incredibly lucky to have a wife who is uh, supportive of of my golf career, like to uh, to the extreme. I think she's as passionate about me accomplishing my dreams as, as I am, and that um, that's a, a massive bonus. I, I think it's it's really one plus one equals three in that in that case, and I've. I've felt a massive kind of sense of freedom since, you know, we started dating. And um, so, so for me, it's been, it's, it's kind of catapulted my career in a way, whereas I think, you know, it, it could go the opposite way um, where guys feel a little bit more, whether it's tied down or they feel more pressure because they have someone else to provide for. Um, yeah. I, like I said, there's always challenges. There's always, um, external pressures or things that you have to face and, and kind of manage and get through. Um, if it was just as, 
as simple as uh, just playing golf all the time, uh, you know, it would be a, an easier career choice. But uh, there's always things to manage and, and, and worry about. And uh, I'm fortunate that uh, that being married and, and meeting my wife and uh, the time that we spend together just enhances kind of what I what I'm trying to do on the golf course. I love it, dude. Okay, so let's get on a on a little bit of a lighter note. Let's talk a little bit about our boy Jeff. Um, we kind of mentioned we can we kind of mentioned him briefly at the beginning. First of all, I just want to know in your mind uh, before we get into how you guys started working together. What do you think makes a good coach? Like, what were you looking for when you were looking for another set of eyes on your game? Um. So for me, I think it's it's a delicate balance what makes a good coach, and I think that's why um, the good ones really stand out. And I would put you obviously in that category. Thank um, you. But I think I think the thing that that really stuck out uh, with Jeff for me is his passion for learning, his passion for knowledge, and his passion for being a great coach. Um, I think that's what makes someone successful really in any walk of life. I think that definitely makes somebody successful as a player to kind of have this, this burning passion. Um, and that really stood out to me for Jeff. I think his, his, uh, the way he kind of yearns for knowledge and understanding of this subject, it really resonated with me because that's how I feel as a player. Um, and so, uh, I, I had been following some of his stuff for probably a couple of, maybe even more so, probably since college. Um, and I loved his understanding of, of the why in golf because I'm a pretty analytical person and, and I always felt like I had questions that um, weren't always answered in a way that I, I could, could kind of understand and, and come to terms with. And so I liked it, Jeff, the, the blend of, kind of this deep, deep level of knowledge, but then able to take that knowledge and, and make it simple and transition it into something that's, uh, that's useful under the, the, big, the most intense pressure. Um, and so I was, I'm just so, I was, before I met Jeff, I was incredibly curious because I, I knew kind of uh, how hard he worked and his, his reputation for having a passion for coaching and, and I wanted to kind of be a part of it. So what, um, how long have you guys been working together? We started working together the fall of 2017. Um, okay, and so at almost, the time three, my, almost three years. Yeah. At the time, my golf swing was in a, an interesting place. And um, I've, I've, made seen, some I've seen it, by the way. <laughs> I have some follow-up questions to that. Um, We've made some incredible strides. Yeah, what was the first thing he told you about your swing at the time? Because I know it was very short and restricted and very level with the knees, and there was a lot going on there. I think he said we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that was the first thing that he told me about my golf swing, um, which is exactly what I wanted to hear, I guess, because that, that's something that I've never had an issue with, and and that I, I love about the game. I feel like if I can have a process that I know is going to make me better, um, I'm, I'm pretty tireless in the way that I want to work at it. So everything was built around the idea of trying to take pressure off your wrist, or did that only come in the later stages of you guys? Uh, no, that's, that's, been a, that's been a new thing, surprisingly. I'm, I'm, um, I'm surprised that, that the golf swing that I showed up to Jeff with in, in 2017 wasn't hurting me more. Um, but uh, the, the biggest thing is my hands really went out early in my backswing. Um, it was incredibly short, not a massive turn. And then it was basically just hanging on my right foot and side bending the shallow of the club back out from a massively steep position um, and kind of making it work. So, so really once we, when we got started, it was kind of starting just with simple takeaway stuff, trying to get the hands going in and a little deeper, the club setting earlier, the club face in a more manageable position, and then kind of seeing what that affected and, and how it affected kind of the chain reaction and then managing it, it from there. So we kind of went piece by piece and uh, I really believed in the process that he had kind of laid out for me. And um, it's, it's been fun and challenging trying to get there. Has your ball flight uh, changed in curvature or have you guys stuck to the same shape since the beginning? Um, 
I would say that my my ball flight has definitely changed. I would say, especially with like wedges and short irons, my my um, my ball flight has gone down quite a bit, much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say my ball flight is much straighter. I used to play a, a pretty swooping draw, um, and and kind of understood the benefits of of hitting a little bit more of a neutral ball flight. Obviously, understanding you know. Um, the impact that the curve has on has on my my golf shots but I, I think i've i've been able to become a more versatile player ball striking wise um not uh, much less one dimensional i would imagine i guess my analysis of that would be if you're steep early and you're side bending to shallow it the path moves very inside out for you which obviously creates a big draw pattern and that also adds a lot of loft which is why i would assume you were hitting your wedges too high yeah, yeah, high draw, high handle, um, not a whole lot of consistency through the strike. Um, so I, I definitely had my work cut out for me when we when we were first getting started. <laughs> okay, so as a whole, then, for you as a player, what do you think has been your biggest strength uh, in the game of golf? Is there one area that's always kind of stood out that's made you sustain the career you've had, or have you just been a very well-rounded player? Um, I took a lot of pride. I've, I've taken a lot of pride in being a well-rounded player. And I don't think that there's too many guys that are playing with long careers on the PGA tour that aren't, aren't well-rounded. I would say that doesn't mean that you don't have strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I would certainly say that in the last three or four years, my strength has been my putter. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's an asset that gives me a lot of confidence as I go forward in my career. Um, but I think, I think what has kind of helped me get to this point and kind of weather the storms of, um, at times when I haven't played my best is I've always been a relatively consistent driver of the golf ball and I have a lot of speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way that I view speed isn't, it's not necessarily a, ever a safety net, certainly, um, because, you know, even, even got otherwise long drivers would be playing on the PGA tour. Um, but it certainly raises your ceiling and gives you more opportunity to, to play great golf. And I feel like um, at some of the years in my career where I haven't been as consistent, I've still had really high finishes because I feel like um, with the speed that I have when I'm playing well, I can play some great golf. And so um, being able to, to hit the ball a long way and drive the ball well has always given me the opportunity to to contend and, and have chances to win when I'm playing well. And I think that's helped me sustain my career. Yeah, I think that there comes a point in time uh, where a player starts to hit the ball too far that the misses go way too far offline and it's almost like a point of diminishing returns. You're, you're no longer seeing the advantage in terms of strokes gained be, just because you're hitting the ball far doesn't necessarily mean much. So we, we've, we've noticed certainly as coaches that there's like a range in that 300 to 350 range of, uh, of yardage where, you know, you can certainly gain on most players, but then beyond 350, it's like you're just hitting it everywhere. And, you know, you hit it one degree offline, that ball's going way further off the map <laughs> at 350 or 400 than it is at 300, you know? So um, yeah, and they're, you're, they're you're, definitely making... that, you're definitely in that range from what I've noticed. Yeah, there's there's always going to be barriers to the golf course. It doesn't get wider at 400. It's you know, it's uh, there's still OB stakes. So that that kind of was one of my follow up questions. Was did, do you think that a player can sustain a career with a noticeable weakness? Because we see a guy like Luke Donald who, you know, made every putt for two years and became number one in the world, but he's short and crooked off the tee. And obviously, at a certain point, that weakness is going to kind of over, you know, overtake your your advantages that you have on the greens or whatever so the fact that you're well balanced i think is a huge um, testament to your game because i see that a lot with players too on the on the course where you know if you have a noticeable deficiency at a certain point it's going to kind of take over and you're not going to be able to keep your card much yeah um it, it's interesting i think the thing that i have learned from from my experience playing with a lot of guys um is that they're they're so comfortable with how they do things that even if they do have a deficiency they're they're pretty good at working around it i was surprised yeah. um 
I thought that I would show up on tour and that, that everyone would have this like filthy, filthy short game that I could just learn so much from and that everyone had spent so much time, you know, chipping and hitting bunker shots and doing that because they were professional golfers that they would all just be, you know, nasty around the green. And I was super surprised when I first started playing that um, a lot of guys have like bad short games that they're kind of working <laughs> around. I think you, I don't know if it's, um, you know, constantly being tested week in and week out or playing incredibly firm, tight ground conditions or crazy thick rough all the time. Um, but you see so many guys on tour hitting, you know, hybrids around the greens or as soon as they get on grainy Bermuda, they're, you know, putting it or, or just kind of working around weaknesses. Um, but I think the, the biggest difference that I've noticed is even the guys that you'll look at and say, man, I'm just not not sure about his golf swing or the way that he does things, but they seem to to really own their stuff, and I think that's what helps guys be successful. Um, I, I think you know obviously you can look at statistics and look at strokes gained driving numbers, and you can say that you know somebody like Luke Donald's a really bad driver of the golf ball, but um, I've played quite a bit with Luke, and I, I think it would it would still look relatively impressive. Um, it's a relative weakness in his game, but yeah. um, he's, he's figured out how to have a really sustainable career and, and his good golf is still really good, even though his, you know, his results the last few years haven't been up to his standard. But um, I mean, he got, no, he got to number one in the world um, without hitting it a long way. And, and um, I would argue that he owned his process pretty good. So what are your, when you're, when you're practicing enough about everybody else, um, when you, do you change, uh, your weeks between a practice week and a tournament mode, like during tournament week, do you kind of shut things down mechanically and you just focus on owning whatever you have at the moment? Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I tend to play a lot and I like getting into the rhythm of competing. I like the experience that competition gives me, um, And so I really have a flow to my weeks in competition. I would say uh, most of the time Jeff's on site and we're working together. And I would say Mondays and Tuesdays, we might address something from the previous week or something that, that I feel like I'm you know, not doing up to my capability or something that I've been struggling with. And um, we'll address that from a technique issue. We'll, we'll kind of uh, diagnose the issue, figure out what's what's creating these shots that are undesirable um, and start working with different fields to kind of address that. And then as the week goes on, uh, I obviously put repetition into those fields and, and get feedback in the ball flight. Um, but as the tournament gets closer, I'm worried solely about controlling my golf ball. Um, I'm doing drills to shape the ball a variety of different ways, just to feel like I have an understanding of face and path. Um, I'm preparing and hitting the tee shots that I'm going to need for the week. Um, it's, it's much more focused on how I'm going to compete at the best of my ability. Um, and, and then after that, that tournament week is done, you kind of repeat that process. So I always feel like I'm kind of breaking it down, um, figuring out what's, what's working well, what's not working as well, um, kind of addressing the issues and trying to just chip away at improvement. I like it, dude. I like that process. That's something I've noticed um, very consistently among great players is their ability to kind of dial in where the weaknesses are during that specific week if you're struggling with something and they, they make that a priority because if, if you're going into the week searching and you don't have a coach there or you're not getting feedback from someone trying to figure it out, the odds of you playing well that week is pretty flatlined. Yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult process. I think I I think competing as much as we do as pro golfers, um, there's always going to be things that you're uncomfortable with and that you're not, um, you're not feeling as good with. I think that's, that's not just, um, I think that's even the best players in the world. I think oftentimes you watch who's ever playing and who's ever playing well. And, and it just seems like they have everything always figured out. Um, but that's certainly not always the case. I think you, You know, if you walk down a range on a Wednesday or a Thursday, there's always, you know, guys hitting it all over the place. And then you, you might be surprised if they shoot five or six under in the first round. Um, 
but it's it's for me it's about kind of finding that that comfort zone and building that confidence that um i know what to expect when i compete and uh you know trying to build that understanding of knowing your game so that you can trust yourself in the heat of competition Sweet, dude. So I want to get into the fan questions now because I have about six, seven of them that people ask and even I'm genuinely kind of curious about these. First Perfect. one is what makes a good playing partner for you versus a bad one? <laughs> a good playing partner versus a bad one. Um, I, I definitely don't, uh, don't hate on guys too much. So there's not too many bad playing partners. Um, I, I guess a bad playing partner is somebody that um, takes a really long time and is oblivious to what you're trying to do out there. Um, has that so happened to you? Without naming names, has that happened to you before? Yeah, of course. It definitely has happened. Um, you know, it means so much to everyone that I think sometimes guys get a little bit lost in what they're doing um, and forget there's other players in the group. But um what makes a good playing partner is just somebody that you can have a, a good conversation with and that keeps you relaxed um, and that you can kind of remember that you're playing a game. Um, so I, that's definitely something that uh, at times in my career I've struggled with. So it's, it's always nice to, to play with a great friend where it's uh, a, a relaxing environment that kind of brings back the, um, you know, the, the kind of fun that you have when when you're a kid just playing with your buddies i have a follow-up question to that which is is there somebody that you enjoy playing with the most that every single time you get to play together you just have a really good time or because you're so lax and you get along with everyone there's too many people to name um i really enjoy playing with luke list we um he's become a really good friend of mine our wives are really close and um for the last two years we've been trying to play this new orleans event together and um Last year, I, I was out with my wrist injury and was super bummed that we couldn't play. And this year, the coronavirus got us. So I, I don't know. I think we'll try again maybe next, next season. But um, I enjoy playing with him. Our games are not too dissimilar. Um, he's pretty easygoing on the golf course. And uh, we have a good time together, that's for sure. All right. Question number three. And I, I honestly don't even know how to feel about this, but apparently you have a super unorthodox fitness regimen and somebody wants to know the principles behind it. Um, I don't know how unorthodox it is. Um, I, I guess it would be relatively sport specific. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't get, I try not to get caught up in the, um, I think it's easy to bring vanity into the gym and I try to make sure that that's not there. Um, but, uh, I've been working with a trainer now for the last probably six or eight months, um, down here in Florida. His name's Jeff Flagg. He's a former long drive, uh, world champ nice. and he's brought a, a pretty cool way of training, um, into my process, which I've, I've really, really enjoyed. Um, and it's basically just bringing as much instability into the gym as you can to to basically build up that kind of armor of core strength um lower body strength and stability um and and basically making your body um work as functionally as possible so um it's been a lot of fun i'm doing some things that i had never done before in the gym um and i feel more athletic than i've felt in a long time and so that's been a lot of fun all right, next one. Um, do you have a favorite course to play on tour? Non-major non course. Yeah, Muirfield Village is probably my favorite course on tour. I think what makes it so enjoyable is that the, mar the, the difference between a good round and a bad round is so big okay. um, that if, if you're playing really well, you can make a ton of birdies. Um, the par fives are all gettable. There's a lot of pin locations where the slopes feed the ball towards the hole. Um, but at the same time, the rough is thick. The golf course is really long. The greens are fast and slopey. And if you're not playing well and you're out of position, it becomes incredibly challenging. And I think too often you find in tour golf that, you know, everyone's hitting to the same spots and 
you know, four under is a great round and one under is terrible. Um, right. Whereas at Muirfield, um, if you're playing great, it's, it's um, very reasonable to shoot 66 or 65. And uh, I've fallen victim to a 77 or a 78 around there too. So it makes for an interesting, interesting day and an interesting week. Sweet, dude. All right, here's the last one for you. Um, if you if you have to lay up on a par five, is there a certain yardage you like to lay up to, and why would that be? I like to get as close to the green as possible because the closer I get to the green, the closer I can hit it to the hole. Good, good. Um, good. That's, not, good uh, that's mathematically proven to be correct, by the way. So that's a good answer. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a lay it up to the right number guy. I'm obviously not going to lay it up and handcuff myself like having a little, you know awkward 50 yarder to a front pin where I can't get it within 20 feet. Mm -hmm. Um, but within reason, I try to get it as close as I can. And I don't, I don't lay up very often. I don't hit less than driver very often. I, uh, I try to push it as much as I can. It's funny because there's like so much science and numbers that have come out through like decade with Scott Fawcett and whoever. And we see so many, so many players who lay up who, consistently score worse on par fives than guys who are going for it i just don't understand why people choose to lay up you're going to be closer to the hole from 40 yards out than you will from 100 no matter how comfortable you are at that yardage i mean it's just mathematically incorrect to lay up yeah i think it's interesting i think um there's a real there's a real thing to loss aversion and i think it's really easy as, as a professional golfer especially with what's what's at stake so often that i think it Oftentimes it's more comfortable to take the conservative option. I think that's honestly what makes some of the best players in the world so impressive is that they're so comfortable being aggressive. Um, but I also think that a, a bad 40-yard pitch feels really bad, but it might be to 15 feet, whereas the wedge shot from 120 yards that you hit to 15 feet, you feel like it's a pretty good shot. So when you, you, know, when you lay up and you, you hit it to 15 feet and then maybe – maybe make a par, you don't really feel like you did anything wrong. Whereas if you, you know, you push it and you're aggressive and you hit that 40 yard pitch shot to 15 feet, it feels crappy. And then you miss the putt and you're like, why didn't I just lay up to a good number? And you kind of, <laughs> you kind of have these, like these mental, this, this uh, mental dialogue in your head, this, this unproductive conversation with yourself that I think makes people make their own decisions sometimes. And I think that's where understanding the math involved is super beneficial because it doesn't let you get into that mindset of negativity because you know that no matter what, you were better off being at the spot you were at, even if you hit a poor chip shot around the green. For sure. I think um, for me, I'm a numbers guy. I'm, I've always been very analytical and, and I find a lot of freedom in that. If I feel like I'm putting together a game plan for the golf course that I know is right when I'm deciding to do that without emotion, um, I'm not looking back frustrated after making a bogey, questioning my strategy, um, right. which is something that, that uh, you know, I, I think at times everyone struggles with. I, I don't think there's a golfer that competes at a high level that, that doesn't look back sometimes and say, man, that was stupid. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's definitely freed me up that I'm making the right decisions consistently um, and, and kind of just allowed me to be in a more relaxed place when I'm competing. All right, I have one last follow-up just because of what you just said. Do you remember the last time you hit a shot that you definitely were should not have taken on, but you pulled off? Is there, um, one, is there one that stands out that you're like, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but fuck it, I'm going to do it, and it kind of came out in your favor? Yes, yes. I have, a, I have a relatively interesting story. So this year at Torrey Pines, um, I, I've played a decent tournament. I've uh, I've hit the ball pretty well and managed it around that golf course. It's always, it's always pretty challenging. Um, and I think I was in the top 15 or the top 10. So I'm going to have a decent week. And it was it, at the time I hadn't played all that great and throughout the season. So I was, I guess, in, in need of a, a good week a little bit. And um, I absolutely rose to drive down 18 and I have, I'm right in between hybrid and four iron sitting there in the left first cut to the front left pin right over the water. And my caddy Lance is trying to talk me into hitting hybrid and just comfortably covering the water. And if anything, hit it in the back bunker. And 
uh, for whatever reason, kind of the adrenaline that I was feeling and, and the speed that I felt like I had, I, it just felt like I was trying to hit driver in there. It felt like way too much clubs. <laughs> but four iron was still making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. So finally I said, I, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable with hybrid at all. I'm just going to hit four iron and I'm going to aim it out to the right, right of the water and just pitch across the green. And so I told, told my caddy, convinced him to get on board with that. Um, and the whole time I was lying and I aimed straight at the pin, hit this big high draw and it covered the water by about a yard and went in the front left bunker and I got up and down and made birdie. But <laughs> I definitely should not have gone at the pin because anything less than a perfectly flush foreign would have been in the middle of the lake that's hilarious and i love the fact that you had to lie to him saying you were aiming right and you just went right at it yeah yeah that's, uh, I, uh, that's let's let's hope your caddy doesn't hear that one by the way no we <laughs> talked about it afterwards i told him i said i straight up lied to your face i'm glad that it's dry <laughs> <laughs> oh shit that's amazing dude well uh i appreciate you coming on man i am um, i'm sure yeah, everyone's thanks, trying to find ways to to pass the fucking time right now because we all got nothing to do but uh you know people are going to love to hear these stories so i i do appreciate you uh taking an hour out of your day no it's really cool i enjoy this stuff and uh major props to what you're doing you're uh you're growing your business like crazy and uh you're you're doing it with with great information so keep uh keep doing a great job i enjoy following your stuff thanks patrick and uh have a great season dude thanks we'll talk soon yes sir So just a few quick reminders, as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast make sure to check us out all over social media. Um, you know, we regularly host giveaways for lessons and merch and golf balls and all sorts of things. And uh, just stay tuned. Next week on the show, we have uh, two wonderful coaches. One of them is pretty prominent on social media as well by the name of Chris Howard. Uh, he's one of my good friends who currently resides in Nevada in Las Vegas, and we have held golf schools together in the past. And the other one is by the name of Andrew Michael, who is the director of golf uh, operations at Jack Aranda Golf Club in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. And it was a three-way conversation, great discussion about instruction. We talked to Andrew about all sorts of things too. So stay tuned for that. We hope you guys are going to enjoy it.